Chapter 2, War Stories. Episode 7, The Mountains of Afghanistan. NOE flight, or Nap of the Earth flight, was a flight technique made famous in the Vietnam War. While flying NOE, helicopters fly as close to the contours of the Earth as possible while still avoiding obstacles like trees and electrical lines. While it carries inherent risks, such as wire strikes and reduced reaction time in the event of an onboard emergency, it allows for great tactical advantages. While flying Nap of the Earth, pilots expose themselves to less enemy observation, greatly reducing the amount of time an enemy force may have to acquire the helicopter as a target and fire. Additionally, some terrain allows for minimizing the sound of the aircraft, increasing the pilot's ability to surprise an enemy force. Kaiwa spent a lot of time in Iraq, but that wasn't our first theater of operations in the War on Terror. Afghanistan as a war zone frequently fell to the background once the war in Iraq kicked off. Iraq was a more controversial theater with seemingly more political ramifications and seemingly more conflict. Afghanistan started to slip into the back of everyone's minds as videos of IED blasts, reports of abuse in Abu Ghraib, and questions surrounding enhanced interrogation techniques took over the news cycles. Kiowas were embedded in that story from day one until day done. But that was not the case in Afghanistan. Colonel Blackman picks up telling us how Kiowas were pulled from, and subsequently put back into, Afghanistan. The 25th took Kiowas to Afghanistan, and they did, they weren't trained to fly them at altitude. They, they weren't prepared, and they crashed three right off the bat. I mean, plowed them into the ground because they, they didn't understand, you know, flying at those altitudes with reduced power. Um, and so that's, you know, they, Cody took them out of Afghanistan, and they stayed out for a long time. And he finally, uh, Jim Richardson, convinced him to let him take uh, 217, but that's when this 6,000-foot restriction was put in place. It was our own fault. When Colonel Blackman went into Afghanistan, he went as the commander of 717. As the wars progressed, units that were slated to rotate into a theater frequently conducted a PDSS, a pre-deployment site survey. It's pretty much what it sounds like. Leaders go into an area of operations that they're planning to take over from another unit. They meet with the people there, learn what they're doing, and bring back any important pieces of information. They also report back on living conditions, where you'll be on the flight line, whether the mess hall chow is any good, and if you can buy dip at the small base exchange. You'll hear him talk about a CONOP brief, a concept of the operations brief. Before a crew goes out, they have a basic brief on what they'll be doing that day. There are some things that make a mission considerably riskier than others, things like flying at night, supporting a deliberate operation, flying at higher altitudes over more mountainous terrain, etc. Generally, the riskier the mission is, the more approvals the crew has to get before they can execute. As the war went on, as more mistakes were made, there was a tightening of that decision-making. What once was left to an air mission commander to decide suddenly began requiring more and more approvals from higher and higher ranking officers. What once required only a battalion-level commander's approval got moved up to the brigade commander, and then sometimes even a general officer. Altitude became one of those things that I ended up dealing with downrange, but it was an issue that came up long before I ever deployed. The thought was, 
that is a single engine airframe, Kiowas weren't able to go above a certain altitude, that the power margins were too narrow to fly safely above 6,000-foot MSL. But Colonel Blackman, as a non-believer in flat-ass rules, had different ideas about the restriction. And then, you know, the con ops, I mean, I will never forget sitting on my PDSS and watching them go through. You've got, you know, four CW5s and an 06 bickering about predominant wind direction and the la- the slope of the landing area. Couldn't land without 06 approval, you know, of where you could land a helicopter. And I just remember thinking, what have we become? What in the world? You know, and, you know, I assumed a lot of risk and pale horse, but I refused to, to do that. I said, you know, if, if I'm commanding everything that a, a, a PIC should be doing, or especially an air mission commander from 50 miles away, thinking I have complete situational awareness, then I failed them before we ever even deployed. And so, you know, I, I flew, I chose to fly Kiowas at 10 or 12,000 feet if we had a reason. I had flown. Alpha Charlies in El Paso. I'd flown an Alpha Model OH-58 at 12,000 feet. I knew it could, we could do it. We we weren't flying diving or shooting diving fire, as, as you saw. I mean, you've been to Afghanistan. Most of the engagements were straight ahead or above us. Uh, the enemy wasn't below us. So there weren't these huge requirements for power. Um, you were usually running flat and then turning or shooting uphill. Um and so we did, uh, we did a lot of training before we left, uh, to environmentally prepare our guys to fly reduced power, you know, maneuvers and confined operations. And, and then I told them, you know, if you, if you're above 6,000 feet and you're screwing around and, and you crash one, then you own it. But if you see a trail or some guys that you need to follow and get a picture and, you know, your, as I like to call it, your situational curiosity as a cavalryman leads you to, to need to go to 10,000 feet, then, then go, then go. And I'll underwrite that. Colonel Blackman went on his PDSS in 2008. He picks up with what he saw there, learning about the place he'd bring 717 starting in 2009. You know, we we thought we had won in Afghanistan essentially, but they had run off into the into the Fatah and and were getting ready for a research, which started in two thousand eight. I, I found out that summer that Jalalabad's where I would where I'd be going, and um, that was then the bloodiest piece of terrain on the planet. I'm there for one night, and that's yours in a few months. Are you ready for this? And uh, my guys, like I said, a lot of Iraq experience, no, no Afghanistan experience. Uh, so the terrain, you know, worried us. Obviously, the weather worried us a lot. But I, I was fortunate. So I followed Paul Bontrager as a commander of 717, and Paul had focused on uh, air mission commander and below the pilots in command, the individual aviators, and Paul had really uh, focused on pilot capability. And he was very open with me about that. He said, hey, Jimmy, I haven't, I haven't focused on the staff. I haven't worried about some of the bigger uh, stuff that, you know, that drives what these guys are going to do, intel, staff you know, processes, and how do you arm them with the information and everything. I, I have focused on execution. And, and that was exactly right. Very quickly, I realized I could I – could, uh, have an economy of force effort on on their ability to fly the airplane and 
and maneuver it, I needed to focus on staff processes and systems. And because I had, you know, I was a closet S2 as a cavalryman, and I, I really knew a lot about intelligence and how to get a pilot meaningful information to action, um, that's where I spent my time and effort. The staff that helps run any Army unit is generally divided into these categories. The S-1 takes care of personnel, managing individual records and performance evaluations. The S-3 is the operations cell, which takes up the majority of the staff. They handle all the planning and preparation to execute any given operation. The S-4 handles supply, and the S-6 handles communications equipment and technology. The S-2, though, is the intelligence officer. And stateside is frequently relegated to making sure containers that are home to secure equipment are managed properly and dealing with paperwork. They help make sure that people keep their security clearances up to date and valid. And they maybe help make up training scenarios for various field exercises. But downrange, an intelligence officer is meant to help the commander understand what the enemy is or likely to do so that they can make decisions about where to maneuver forces. They become truly indispensable. I didn't ask for permission for a lot of things, and and I've discussed this with my peers <laughs> over the years as well. And you know, some of them felt like I got away with a lot. Some of them felt like I assumed too much risk at times. And and uh, and and I, what I'm said, I was just crazy <laughs> a couple of times. But you know, my litmus test was I got to look myself in the mirror the rest of my life, and I got to know that I did something. I, I made a decision not based on what I thought my boss would think, or the protocols and that's the way we've always done it. But that given the specific information I had and the, the, the situation that I was in, did I make the best decision I could and I could live with that the rest of my life? That was my litmus test. 2009 was not a normal year. I mean, I wound up being present, not necessarily in every battle, but either an air mission commander, the aviation task force commander running the talk or, or, you know, in some way involved in the battles in which five medals of honor were earned. Uh, so it was, it was the biggest, you know, it was Ganjagal, it was Keating, it was Wanat, it was, you know, it was these, these really big battles. And, and you look at Ganjagal, we had three different fights going on that day. That's the same day that Adam Stead got shot in the head and Patrick Benson got his leg exploded in the cockpit. In July of 2008, while Colonel Blackman was on his PDSS to Jalalabad, Afghanistan, what has come to be known as the Battle of Wanat took place. In an unknown valley at a small outpost occupied by soldiers of the storied 173rd Airborne Brigade, a battle took place in which nine U.S. soldiers were killed, 27 were wounded, and eventually three medals of honor would be awarded. It was a shocking battle. The enemy attacked in a conventional manner, taking advantage of their wild ability to maneuver in the mountains, exploiting the small, fixed, defensive position we'd established. Despite a 75% casualty rate among the American forces, they held the outpost. On September 8th of 2009, a patrol of U.S. forces partnered with Afghan forces began moving on foot to Ganjagal. They were going to meet with village leaders about possible improvements to the village mosque. They were meant to support the Afghan National Army effort to build relationships with local leaders. The day was not supposed to include a firefight. And yet, 
As the forces approached the village, they were welcomed with an onslaught of rocket-propelled grenades and machine-gun fire. It was a planned, coordinated attack, which left the American forces disjointed, injured, and nearly overrun. The commander that day was Captain William Swenson. He was able to call for aviation support. Later, he would state, We did receive our aviation support, the Kiowas. They're aggressive, like little bees. They swarm all over the place, quick, nimble. The enemy knows that when helicopters show up, it's in their best interest to find somewhere to hide. If the enemy is out in the open, they'll be found, and that'll be a bad day for them. While the scout team fired on enemy forces, Captain Swenson and others were able to retrieve their broken and bloodied men, carried them down the steep mountainside to the landing zone where a medevac waited for them. Five American service members were killed that day. Captain Swenson would later be awarded the Medal of Honor. The next month, October of 2009, soldiers of the 4th Infantry Division were attacked at Combat Outpost Keating in the Kamdesh River Valley. After a 12-hour battle with enemy forces at the outpost, some described as the bottom of a fishbowl, eight Americans lay dead and 22 more wounded. Two medals of honor were awarded for that fight. President Obama would later note that these soldiers were forced to defend the indefensible outpost. Given all that happened in his tenure as squadron commander of 717 during that nine-month deployment, Colonel Blackman found himself in an odd position, caught between being a husband, a father, and a commander. The emotional toll of that year was probably, I, I did not realize the power an effect that would have on me as a leader, probably. Um, and then, you know, and I, I talk about it at the end of Pale Horse, uh, I didn't want to leave. Uh, and I felt guilty for that. Um, I, it had been everything to me for a year. My every minute, every second of every day, all I thought about, all I cared about was um, that fight and what we were doing and trying to accomplish. And we lost... 35 guys on the ground that year. Uh, I don't know how many pilots shot, four or five. Uh, uh, I don't know how many wounded on the ground. Uh, two helicopters, you know, shot down. Every helicopter probably in the fleet shot up. Um, and it took an emotional toll and it was, um, and then we got ready to go and I had a family that I should, you know, be excited to go back to. And I, and I did want to, but I didn't want to leave. And that made me feel guilty that I didn't, that I had those feelings when I should want to go home. So it, it was a, uh, it was an emotional year. Gary also deployed to Afghanistan. He talks about how training to fly in the mountains and altitude of the country made Kiowa operations possible. First of all, as the Kiowa community, we didn't have the training. Real game changers when they started letting Kiowa pilots go to Colorado for hatch training, high altitude army aviation training. That was a game changer for everybody because once we started understanding the uh, pre-mission planning performance charts and you know what we could and could not do and learning all the techniques, what you got was a version of that called Hammets, which was the Army version, like the regular Army version of it because they couldn't send everybody there TDY. So it was like train the trainer, we'll train you, we'll give you the techniques. I would say that was a huge game changer as far as our Afghanistan involvement. I went with the squadron in 2013 to Knoxville, Tennessee, 
to participate in high-altitude mountainous environment training, or hammocks. I learned about how winds flying down the leeward side of a mountain are erratic and can make for difficult flying conditions. I learned how to forgo perfect traffic patterns in favor of finding the wind and landing into a slope. I learned that always having an escape path away from terrain required forethought, planning, and attention. I can't imagine a deployment to eastern Afghanistan without that training. Gary actually went on a PDSS along with Colonel Blackman in 2008, ahead of their tour in 2009. I actually did a PDSS the September before we left. And I flew around with a friend of mine that was in Green Platoon with me. And uh, he had taken me out that night in a Chinook. And uh, <laughs> it was eye-opening. You know, Afghanistan, the terrain, I'm like, this is a whole nother fight, brothers. Like, this is totally different. Um, so all, all the PDSs, uh, I mean, they all did the same thing. They came back and they said, oh, the showers are great. You got, you can get your dip and you can get your smokes and chow's great, whatever. You're going to live fine. But nobody went down range and asked, um, you know, 217, like, how are you doing business? And I actually sat down over some coffee one night and just said, how are you guys doing business? And when I came home, the squadron didn't want to talk about it. So I ended up going down to each troop and visiting and saying, this is what 217 is fighting. And bringing back photos. And I'm like, dude, this is a game changer. These mountains, they'll shoot you from above. They'll shoot you from the bottom. You really got to keep your distance, you know, and help change TTPs. That what we thought we were going to do. And um, I mean, I will tell you that night flight out there with my buddy. I'm like, man, this is this is some dangerous wild country. Not only just for flying, <laughs> there's bad guys in the hills. <laughs> Afghanistan might be some dangerous wild country, but it is also insanely beautiful. Man, I've got to send you. I've got to send you this photo. We we went up this one valley one day and we came back and be like, if we could just hire some people to protect us, there's enough rock up here and these guys can lay some rock. We could build a huge hotel. And we could do kayaking and mountain, you know, mountain climbing, hiking, and we would make a killing. The only problem is the Taliban. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, because I mean, it is, it is a, it is a gorgeous, you know, rough place. I mean, it's, it, I think they're amazing people. I mean, for example, so Iraq, bunch of trash on the side of the road, right? Dead dogs. I mean, there's just, everything's on the side of the road. Go to Afghanistan, there ain't nothing. Everything is used. You throw a water bottle out the door, they'll figure something out to do with that thing. So, yeah, and, uh, and those guys were just amazing as people. I mean, you think about it. They have no electricity, no refrigeration, no nothing, and they survive year to year. They'll take a mountain and they'll terrace it up and they'll plant, you know. I mean, to me, they're incredible, resilient people. Um, nothing but respect for them. As fighters, man, you never turn your hand down. You, you don't turn your don't turn your back on. I mean, those guys those guys climbed and like no no kidding, a twenty three millimeter uh, machine gun. Well, you know it's an AAA gun up the side of a hill. They only shot one bullet at a time, but they humped that thing up the side of a hill that had to be forty five degrees. I mean, like who does that? Gary didn't go on the twenty fourteen deployment. So during our conversation, he actually ended up interviewing me at times, asking what we were able to do or what my experiences were. 
I told him the story about the time we broke a high-value target's leg doing a test fire. Anytime we left the airfield, we needed to test our weapon systems. All machines break, and that includes 50 caliber machine guns and 2.75-inch rocket pods. There were designated areas along mountainsides that were pre-approved, so to speak, to test our weapons. The craziest thing was that uh, kids would hang out near those areas waiting for us to test fire, and they'd collect the brass from our 50 cals and melt it down and use it in various and sundry things. Some of it they would use to decorate uh, wooden boxes. I bought one at the bazaar on the airfield, and the golden medal that once encased a 50 caliber bullet is now a beautiful flower atop a round wooden container that holds my spare change. At any rate, if we were called out to a troops in contact mission, we frequently didn't stop to test fire. Time was of the essence, so we went direct to where the ground forces were located. One day, we responded to a troops in contact scenario in which there was a deliberate operation on a village because we had intelligence that a high value target was in that village. By the time we showed up, though, the shooting had stopped. So, we asked the ground force if they would mind us doing a test fire in the mountainside opposite the village. Ground forces didn't ever seem to mind us doing a test fire. If we weren't going to test fire in a normal location that was pre-approved, we obviously had to do a scan of the area and make sure there was no quote-unquote civcast collateral damage or civilian casualties collateral damage. So... We turned away from where the village and villagers were into a seemingly empty mountainside and shot. Later on, we were told that that high-value target got wind of our forces moving in, so he took off. He hid in the mountainside where we shot, and as we test-fired, he fell, trying to scurry away, and broke his leg. Gary then shared with me the controversy that erupted over the test-fire back in 2009. And the whole discussion was test-fire. I'm telling you, man, Colonel Blackman fell on the sword that day. He was like, he was, he was going down with preserving it. And 3101 commander was trying to get rid of it. And so was the 4101 commander. Like, all these guys were trying to get rid of it. Brigade, they had the brigade commander convinced. You know, we were all the way down in Jalalabad. Oh, Colonel Blackman, man. He stood toe to toe with all of them. I mean, the fun thing I like him for, like that one moment, like he went toe to toe. With all of them. He's like, I don't know what you all are doing. And I don't know what kind of terrain or fight you're in. But in our flight, that test fire is damn important. Because we use that line with poos and current activity. And basically, he was telling them, was like, just because they quit firing doesn't mean they're not there. So we would go in and shoot everything we had at them, knowing that they were there. We would just make sure there was no CIVCAS collateral damage. And we'd get lucky every once in a while. Sometimes we got lucky. And sometimes we didn't. Earlier, we heard Colonel Blackman mention Adam Stead. Gary picks up the story of how Adam was shot, protecting the medevac helicopter, picking up wounded American forces. Adam Stead. So my team, uh, the team I was on, uh, was all made up of Rangers. It was really unique. We were all tabbed out. Me, David Zintek, Adam Stead, and then we had Captain Patterson, and we were uh, we would actually go and go to places that we weren't supposed to, looking for a gunfight. And uh, I was on this team for a while. It was absolutely fun. We would try to go stir up trouble, 
try to go find bad guys. Go where we're not supposed to go. Go up the Waterport Valley when we weren't supposed to be even close to it. We're like, well, let's just go poke our head in there and just see who's there today. You know, always just trying it for a gunfight. Went home on leave. Miss is still sad to this day to me. Like, I mean, emotionally. So, you know, I, I'm in transit for like a week to get home and I'm at home and, have, you know, great to see the family, drinking some beers and phone rang. And it was the commander's uh, wife. And she's like, oh, Gary, you're home. I'm like, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, you already know what's going on. I'm like, no, I don't. I've been in transit for a week. What happened? To find out that, you know, Pat Benson got hit and that same bullet went up, you know, whatever. Went in the back of Adam Stead's head. And, uh, you know, that was my team. And you always think, well, maybe if I'd have been there, it might have been a little different. Because Pat wasn't on our team for so long. You know what I mean? I mean, just, you know, the gel wasn't there maybe that day. Uh, but they had put themselves between the bad guys and the medevac helicopter. I mean, they, and they, they had done the right thing to protect the hoist. And, uh, you know, to this day, I haven't talked to Adam in a long time. But last time I saw him, he's like 85% probably. That was the moment that I was like, man, we're not bulletproof. Gary and I spent some time talking about what it means to not be bulletproof all these years removed. I think there was a piece of me that was like, We'd been at this since 2001. You know, it's 2009, it's 2011, and it's still going on. I'm sure there's Vietnam guys that felt the same way. You know, uh, is this ever going to end? Um, and another side of you is like, can't wait to shoot next. Does that make sense? Like, there's a, there's a piece of you that's like, I want to live through this thing. And there's another piece of me is like, give me the opportunity. I knew exactly how Gary felt. Give me the opportunity. Let me loose. Quit tying me to these strict rules and procedures and restrictions. You hired me to find, fix, and destroy the enemy. So let me do it. There were days that those frustrations were all-consuming. We talked about them in the cockpit. We wished for a different kind of war. One that didn't worry so much about winning hearts and minds, but winning key pieces of terrain and strategic battles. We ended up talking about the misperception that aerial superiority or targeted airstrikes meant we could win the war on terror. We knew that you could shoot up the same bad guy village every day for a year, and it probably wouldn't make that much of a difference. In the end, you'd need some ground guys. I'll tell you another one. How many times have you found something that nobody can go look at? I mean, you you found something that's suspicious or people acting suspicious. I mean, I've I've nailed so many. I've nailed. I've probably done more on reconnaissance. You know, so we get a hit, and I'm not going to go into classified information, but I'm given a location. I go over there, and there's one guy out of seven that won't look at you. Seven of them sit down, one stays up. I'm like, I found your boy. But nobody can go over there and scoop him up. I've flown over four guys coming out of a house one time that would not look at me. They all bent over the wall. And I'm like, I told my Apache, like, that's bad. And he's like, I got him. And I'm like, nothing you can do about it. No weapons. See, that was the epiphany for me. 
it took a long time. And I'll give you a story in Bosnia. So we're out doing recce. Uh, we went down to Sarajevo to support the uh, Germans. Uh, we were actually supporting the Germans, the Italians. Couldn't even speak to any of these guys. They were just pointing at a map and go, do this. And we're like, ah, we got your idea. We're going to go out here and wreak havoc in order to elicit a response. And you had checkpoints out there that you were going to hopefully that we would find four vehicles in a row traveling at the same speed. That that was going to be, I think, Rattlevan was his name. I can't remember. They were, they were pretty convinced he was in town. And the Germans were trying to get him. Italians were doing the same thing. The French, we were all, whatever quadrant we had, we, we went down there. So I was flying with my lieutenant at the time. I was an IP. And uh, so we went, I mean, we went south of Sarajevo. And we go through this town, and this light at the very end of town was on. And when I got there, right about when the rotor blade noise hit him, the light would go off. And uh, we would turn around and went back to the north part of town. We came back down again. The light was on. When we got there, turned it off. Not telling him. I'm like, hey, you know, that's suspicious. He's like, Gary, it's because they turned their light off. I'm like, let me give you a story. When I was a battalion scout in 49 Infantry, I had met this colonel who was an intelligence officer in Vietnam. And he, we had walked out on JRTC, out in the train to this particular spot. And we had met this colonel, and he was trying to teach us about recce. He's like, okay, look, at what, look around you. We're all just standing there. We're a bunch of specialists and stuff like that. You know, nobody had taught us how to scout. And I'm like, being a former infantry guy, I'm like, looks like they dug into 180 right here. He's like, and how many holes? I'm like, I think I see eight. Yes. So what size is an eight-man unit? It's two man per hole, right? That's a squad size element in a 180. He says, here's the other thing. See that 550 cord right there between two trees? I'm like, yeah. I want to know if it's high or low. I'm like, why? Well, if it's high, they're drying clothes. If it's low, it's a hooch. That meant they spent they they meant to spend time there. And that's when my epiphany hit me. I'm like, everything out there is intelligence. If you're going to be a good scout, so the light going on and going off is suspicious. And that is the one thing that the Kiowa pilot we learn to do that no UAV can ever do. No Apache pilot can do from a thousand feet is what your eyes tell you. And I think that's a huge difference. And then generationally, from the beginning of the war, as we had built scout pilots that learned to read terrain, people, movements, all those human experiences that guys brought back, talking about who sits up, who sits down, who doesn't look at you, how, I mean, uh, here's a good one. Are, is the bumper in the back lower than the front in the vehicle? It's a VBID. Why? Because the, tr the, the trunk of the car is heavier than the front. That's not normal. So all those abnormalities that we had learned and we were training you guys on, man, they, they saved countless lives because we could pick that stuff up. This is something that I had to learn. It's like, it's not so much your data. It's just that, yeah, it's a small spot report that goes up, but it might fit somebody else's profile, like higher up in the soft community or, you know, at core level or, you know, at whatever level is they've been waiting for somebody on that building to show up. Like they know that's been going on. You don't, but that intelligence is up there and you're just, per you're, you're, you're putting another piece to the puzzle above you. Now you'll never hear about it, you know? 
and, and I had that, that was my epiphany talking to this colonel. It was like, you never know what, what you told somebody or what you saw that made, uh, just man, it made the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It was that thing that made, why did I look at it twice? Because it was just, it was called an obvious sighting, right? Fundamentals of reconnaissance, obvious sighting. It was just like, wow, that just wasn't there yesterday. It wasn't there the day before. It's not the pattern of life, you know? Before the 09 deployment to Afghanistan, Gary helped train new Kiowa pilots. While a tour to this country would be new for both Gary and the newbie pilots, his lesson helped prepare the next generation of scouts like Jeff. The, the, the scouts that taught us um, were, you know, hey, your whole job is for the, 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 the ground guy. You know, that the whole Army Aviation song, Above the Best, like, we really buy into that. We're, we're above the best. We're not the best. The guys on the ground are the ones that matter. And that's, that's how I was raised as a scout in flight school. And then when I got to 717 Cav and at Fort Campbell, that's that, that continued, you know, I was always taught to believe and as a former infantryman, like the, the guy with the rifle taking that building is the one that matters. And you have to do everything you can to help him protect him, kill the bad guys, whatever you can do. Uh, my first aviation deployment was 717 was to Afghanistan. I've never been there before. We got back from JRTC, and I believe we deployed on the 12th of December. We were RC East. Um, Task Force Pale Horse owned two troops of Kiowas, uh, a, a company of Blackhawks, a company of Apaches, and I think a few Chinooks from National Guard units. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, and maybe some medevac. And we were at Jalalabad, Afghanistan, or Fob Fenty. So there was a learning curve for all of us. As J- Jalalabad sat at about 2,500 MSL. And then the Konar went, you know, all the way up. You could go to 11,000 feet up at the top if you wanted to. I asked Jeff what the 09 deployment looked like for him. But before he begins this next story, a few acronyms you'll want to know. CLIP, or CLP, stands for Combat Logistics Patrol. This is a convoy of supply guys bringing things like fuel, ammo, and other necessities to various outposts. MSR means Main Supply Route which is generally a hardball road that can accommodate our bigger vehicles. HE stands for high explosive. There are many different kinds of munitions, but an HE round is one that is lethal because it explodes on impact. So predominantly, we supported troops in contact. If there was a firefight going on, we went to it. Um, but we also had the what we called the Catalina Wine Mixer, which at the time when we got there was the Avenger clip. So clip is CLP or combat logistical patrol. So they would, they would take a, a couple hundred civilian trucks. So Afghan driven Afghan truck, and they would be guarded by Americans in MRAPs and things like that. And they would drive from Jalalabad all the way up the Konar to Fob Bostic. Now, it was a hardball road on MSR California all the way up to, gosh, I can't remember the name of the cop. It wasn't, it wasn't Joyce because Joyce was south of ABAD. Um, but once you got past ABAD, there was, another, there was another fob up there. It may have been Cop Monty. Once you got off, a, off the hardball at Cop Monty, 
you were on MSR Stetson and it was a dirt road and they got hit every time they drove on it. So we would have to have air coverage the entire time they were on that route. You're talking eight hour days easy. So the Avenger clip, which I think became, I can't remember the name, the second name it became, but we always just called it the Catalina wine mixer. And if you drew that mission, you were going to be flying from, you know, six o'clock in the morning until six o'clock at night over top of those guys trying to get down a couple kilometers of dirt road. But the enemy knew how to hide from us and they knew how to attack and then disappear. So it, it was not, I mean, it was eventful. It was always eventful. I remember one day there was, so the, the CLP itself was, was driven by truck drivers and I don't know, quartermaster type people. They, they would sometimes get escorted by guardian vehicles, which were coming out of, I think cop, was it Monty? It may have been Monty. One day I was flying it and a truck with fuel in it, the driver had been shot through the leg. And the truck behind it was a 10-foot Connex on the back full of 155 HE rounds. The, the forward portion of the security, all the Americans had driven out of the, the contact zone. And the wrecker, the Hemet wrecker, was with the people who had left. And we were, I was talking to the convoy commander who was a, a young female lieutenant who was sitting in an MRAP that had taken an RPG. And she's sitting in there with dead people. And so she's not in the best of frame of mind. And I had to convince her that she needed to turn her wrecker around and go back and get the, the, the fuel vehicle that was pouring diesel fuel all over the road and get it off the road or out of the road so that everything else could continue. And that was a challenge. The security guys from COP, I, again, I think Monty, they, they at gunpoint put the Afghan driver of the truck with the 155 rounds and the 10-foot Connex back in his truck and he began to drive forward to try and go through this area and he got shot in the leg and immediately t-boned his truck so the road is only maybe 10 feet wide and there's a sheer cliff going up a few hundred feet on the on the left and going down a few hundred feet on the right into a river so he's now blocking the road with all these he rounds and i remember asking the guy who had made him get in the truck like, talk to me about his bullet wound. Like, did it come up and out through his leg or did it come straight across his leg so I can determine where they're shooting at him from? And uh, we determined that it was coming from the beach on the river on the other side. And I, I call maybe F-15s or F-16s. And I wanted them to drop a 500-pounder on the beach. But then my team was like, hey, that, that truck's full of 155 HE. So if we put a 500-pounder there, it could detonate that truck. So we had whatever it was, I think it was F-15s, coming and do 20-mic-mic gun runs on the beach. We finally got them out of there that day. But the, the sad part of that story is the, the girl in the truck with the lieutenant who took the RPG and died only got on that, that convoy to go visit her husband who was at Fob Bostic. So that, that was... That uh, was a rough day. You you can't prepare yourself for those days. Um, I, I've got probably five or six other stories about Jalalabad that were bad days. That there's nothing that prepares you for that. You just 
you can be a great pilot, but when you have to talk to that lieutenant who's lost her mind because she's got a dead person sitting in her truck, um, yeah, there's nothing. Jeff and I talked a little bit about the different kinds of missions Kiowas went on that deployment. The difference between being a scout and being an aerial weapons platform. Obviously, responding to a troops in contact scenario is, well, sexier. It's a thing that movies are made out of. To be honest, sometimes doing scout peer missions got a little boring. And like Gary, Jeff found the lack of ground forces available to action some of these suspicious sightings to be, well, demoralizing. The, the Kiowa didn't want to do its mission of scout so much as it just wanted to run to the sound of the guns. And then when we did do scout missions where I actually found things that were decidedly like suspicious, I guess, there was nothing to respond to it. So I could find a donkey train that was going up a bad guy valley, and I thought for sure these are bad. But there wasn't an air reaction force that year to come out and land and investigate. Where we would find bad guys, the the ground force didn't have access. They they would have to walk up a a thousand foot mountain or two thousand foot mountain to on a donkey trail to find it. I never heard these specific stories while I trained with these men for my deployment. Gary never told me about Adam Stead. Colonel Blackman never talked about being in the command post when the Battle of Wanat came screaming over the radios. Jeff never told me about the Catalina wine mixer. These were stories that they held on to, never bringing them up in the office or in the cockpit. But the lessons that they learned from these experiences, they certainly shared those. Gary and I would fly around the back 40 of Fort Campbell, looking for various indications of deer, so he knew where he'd want to go hunt that weekend. He taught me I could find things I didn't even know I could see. He taught me how to look at a piece of terrain, not for what it is now, but for what it might have been yesterday. Jeff taught me how to think about the ground guy, how not to look at a vehicle from above, but to picture myself in, looking out. He taught me the importance of sounding cool and calm on the radio, even if I didn't feel that way. I guess because you never know when you'll find yourself talking to a lieutenant with a dead driver. Next week, we will pick up with more war stories from Afghanistan. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a spare moment and would like to rate and review, we would greatly appreciate your feedback. At the end of the series, we will host a special question and answer episode. If you have any questions you would like to ask myself or any of our cowboys, please reach out to us at membersofsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Instagram at Members of Society Podcast. Until next week, Death Rides.